Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Carbon Removal Show. Hello, lovely listeners. My name's Emily Swaddle. And I am Tom Praviti. And today we have a very special episode for you guys. Yeah, I don't like to um, keep rubbing this in, Tom, but do you remember last year when I went to that really cool event, Carbon Unbound Europe, and you couldn't make it? Episode, sadly. I do remember. Very, very sadly. (laughs) Don't remind me again. Well, in between crying about the fact that you couldn't be there, we met loads of really interesting people, including Johnny Gilson from a company called Carbonaires. And Johnny was telling us about this really interesting concept that they've been working on. And after a bit of a conversation, they decided very generously that they wanted to fund an episode so that we could dive deeper into this idea and share it with all of you lovely listeners. So thank you very much, Carbonaires. Throughout this season, the focus or topic of conversation has predominantly been around scale. How do we scale up the carbon removal industry? Our conversation today with Johnny Gilson and Professor Niall McDowell addresses this idea of scale through the concept of fungibility. Right. As we know, removal credits come in all shapes and sizes. Tom, we've even talked about how one turn of carbon removed does not necessarily equal another turn of carbon removed if it's been achieved through a different method of removal. We have indeed, and there are many ways to measure the effectiveness of different CDR methods, but the one that we always come back to again and again is durability. Exactly. How long is that CO2 staying out of the atmosphere? So, if not all these tons are equal, how can we price them fairly? Well, our chat with Johnny and Niall today offers a practical solution for factoring durability into carbon removal credits, aiming for a fairer pricing system that will ultimately support the growth of durable removals and the industry as a whole, because their approach actually doesn't disregard nature-based solutions in doing so. Well, we've been looking for ways to support this scale-up, and I'm glad that nature-based solutions don't get left behind. So, let's get into it. Thank you for joining us, Johnny and Niall. It would be great if you could start off by introducing yourselves and also introducing Carbon Airs. Thank you very much, Emily. Well, I'm Johnny Gilson. I'm head of investments at Carbon Airs, and we're a London-based carbon asset manager. And what we do is we offer finance and liquidity to carbon removal projects. But also, importantly, we offer science and tech-led capabilities in order to enhance the integrity of the projects that we invest into. So, for example, we've got a digital twin strategy to help enhance MRV, but we also leverage our science capabilities with our dear friends and partnership at Imperial College London. My name is Niall McDowell. I'm a professor at Imperial College London, and I'm also a science advisor with Carbon Airs. Wonderful. Thank you both. Would you like to speak for a moment on the sort of values of Carbon Airs, what matters most? Yeah, absolutely. I think really what matters most to us is comprised into one word, really. It's transparency. But alongside that, I would say science-led climate impact, because what we ultimately want to finance are truly high-integrity climate mitigation activities at scale. So let's dive into like the problem here. Talking about the voluntary carbon market as it currently works, what's the problem? Where are the complexities? Tell us all about it. Well, as I'm sure you guys know, and many of your listeners know, the BCM is an incredibly complex space, especially to those that aren't necessarily in it from day to day. But for me, the complexity is bucketed into two areas. And the first key area really is based on traditional BCM theory. 
So traditional VCM theory is that you're supposedly trading a ton of CO2, which is represented through one credit. But the reality is, is that in most cases, that's not really the case. So very hypothetical example here, you emit one ton, most likely fossil CO2 into the atmosphere, and you're supposedly compensating for that through one credit, which is represented through one ton CO2. And I could probably segue into the claim space here. So, you know, straddling contribution or compensation. But I think for the sake of my point, I'm wanting to just focus purely on the climate impact of a removal. So in most cases, one credit is not equivalent to a fossil CO2 emission. And as it stands, I see complexity arising as there's no real scientifically validated way of assessing that. And that's quite key here. You know, I think it's crucial that in order to help scale the CDR market, we need a way of assessing this equivalence. But secondly as well, I think in terms of complexity, in terms of the second bucket, there's no one definition of quality. Quality is a narrative that gets talked about a lot, but ultimately it's a very noisy and confusing space when attempting to judge quality of credits. And, you know, naturally there's a lot of reputational risk that's prevalent now. And all of this creates confusion and naturally reduces confidence. Of course, you know, there's some great efforts being made in an attempt to dispel all of this. But currently, the starting point for many buyers when evaluating quality are the traditional VCM assessment categories here. So additionality, permanence, leakage, co-benefits. But I just want to make something crystal clear. Now, what we're talking about here is climate impact. So we lean mainly on permanence or durability, as it's called, and leakage to some extent may come into it. I'm not saying that other assessment categories are any less important. It's just really key that we distinguish between them. Totally. And I, I agree with everything you've said. When you're looking at the voluntary carbon market as a whole, that includes projects that are perhaps less durable in some instances in comparison to something like direct air capture. It kind of leads on to this credit quality question and it feels as though there's quite a lot to talk about here. So maybe Johnny, if you'd like to say a few things. Yeah, I mean, credit quality is, is a very good question and there's no real quick answer. I mean, one thing that's evident in quality is that it's an extremely dynamic area. And I briefly mentioned about the assessment categories before, additionality, permanence, leakage code benefits, and that in itself requires an immense amount of due diligence into each category. I would definitely be amiss not to mention and applaud, of course, the great efforts that our stakeholders are making that many of your listeners have no doubt come across, right? So ICVCM, VCMI, SBTI, and of course, the new additions to the ecosystem, the rating agencies. So all of the above are working extremely hard to help define quality, inspire confidence, and try to scale the market. And they're absolutely without a doubt needed. But I think the key here, and for the sake of my point, I'm approaching this a bit more from a fundamental angle in terms of a net zero paradigm. An important part of this narrative in quality that I feel doesn't get enough attention or limelight is climate value, climate impact. So the questions that I would be asking myself, you know, what is the genuine scientifically validated climate value attached to this credit that I'm buying or for the damage that has or is being done? So in most cases, this is fossil emissions going into the atmosphere. What's the equivalent or quantifiable value or repair attached to the credit that I'm buying? Now, if we truly want to scale the carbon markets in an attempt to reach the Paris Agreement goals of limiting global warming, 
I feel that these really are the questions that we need to start answering. Yeah, maybe to just add some context to this. When you take fossil carbon out of the lithosphere, so, you know, some form of fossil fuel or whatever, and you combust it and you put that CO2 into the atmosphere, this CO2 persists in the atmosphere for tens of thousands of years. And so in order, therefore, to properly compensate for the climate impact of fossil carbon emissions, arguably a removal has to be equivalently durable. There's obviously, you know, a discussion to be had about, yes, but also other forms of shorter duration carbon sinks also have a role to play, either in a stacked fashion or addressing tipping point concerns and so on and so forth. But from the perspective of, is this ton of carbon you removed from the atmosphere, is this adequately fungible with an additional fossil carbon emission? They really do need to compensate each other correctly. So this means that the store needs to last essentially forever. Yeah, totally. It is always good to ground this in the basics of simply too much carbon in the atmosphere. So our listeners might be familiar with this word, but in this context, what do you mean by fungibility? So fungibility is just another way of saying to what extent is this ton of carbon removed equivalent or exchangeable for a ton of carbon emitted? Hitherto, a ton of carbon removed through, for example, a, an avoided deforestation product, that's basically being considered equivalent to the emission of a ton. Those prices are in the order of 0 to $20 a ton. Aforestation, so actually planting new trees, typically sit in sort of that $20, $30-ish dollar space. And to be clear, not chopping down trees and restoring ecosystems are both very, very good and important things to do. But you are never going to do direct air capture or bioenergy with CCS or enhanced weathering and so on for zero to 20 or 20 or 30 dollars a ton. And the fact that hitherto these other forms, the avoided deforestation and nature-based solution type options have been considered equivalent has inhibited the value of carbon removal, of carbon credits, of carbon offsets going up to a level that will support investment in these other technologies, right? And again, we absolutely need all of the above all of the time as quickly as possible. But the question is, well, how many afforestation projects are equivalent to one ton of CO2? Is it 5, 10, 20? You know, what's the number? Because it's pretty crystal clear that if you, via direct air capture, again, we're using that as an example alone, but it's a good thought experiment. If via direct air capture, you remove a ton of CO2 from the atmosphere, that is one very measurable, very auditable, very verifiable ton that has been removed. When you get into the afforestation or other spaces, it's less straightforward. And so, you know, you can get into kind of what's called vertical stacking or horizontal stacking. So instead of planting one tree or whatever the number is to compensate for the fossil carbon, I will plant 10 trees, I will plant 20 trees, and therefore the math works out. Or I pinky promise that after these trees are harvested or they die or whatever, we will plant new trees. And in so doing, we will get an equivalent compensation. So you can make that work. And in principle, yes, maybe. But then we get into... Well, when forest fires happen, they tend to sort of happen all over that location. So if you do want to kind of do this stacking piece, well, okay, but we probably want to do it in lots of different places as well. So the complexity kind of comes in. And then on top of that, again, you have the option of doing all of this, but the political risk associated with an afforestation project in country A and the political risk associated with an afforestation project in country B are not necessarily the same. So how do we value trees planted in jurisdiction A, jurisdiction B? Whereas direct air capture or enhanced weathering or whatever, wherever you do it, that carbon is permanently removed and it's never coming back. On that point, you know, Noel explained it from, you know, a science perspective. 
fungibility in its traditional sense of the word leans very much on financial market analogy. So the two could somewhat be linked. But going back to the financial markets analogy, markets, we're looking for scale. You know, with scale, we can create deep liquid markets and we need this for maximum impact. So you want fungibility and liquidity in markets to try and help you manage risks. And that's quite evident in futures markets where standardization can also help you with those risks. But alongside this, and very importantly, it can help you with price signaling. And that's something that I feel is missing from the CDR market. So we're taking a science-based approach here, trying to create that equivalence or fungibility between the unit of harm going into the atmosphere and then the unit of repair which we're talking about as a carbon dioxide removal credit in this instance so it's about comparing like for like right and the hope is that our science-based methodology of fungibility can be applied to a market's perspective because we want scale and we want greater capital flows towards cdr projects that have got genuine certified climate value and this is something Carbon Airs is adopting. But just to be clear, everything has a value. It might just not necessarily on its own be 100% fungible with a fossil CO2 emission. It's just about being clear and quantifying that value. And that's what I feel is missing. When you say 100% fungible, that implies that there's a fungibility scale, fungibility spectrum. Or is it rather that something is exclusively either fungible or non-fungible? That is exactly the right question. Typically, something is either being entirely fungible or it's not. So there's very binary discussion. And oftentimes, different stakeholders will want to count things in or count things out in a very black and white kind of way. I think the point is that all things are useful. Everything. Avoided deforestation, afforestation, biochar is useful, enhanced weathering is useful, BECs, stacks, everything is useful. The question is, how do they compare? So, for example, I hate to do this kind of plug my own research piece, but one study that we did here in Imperial last year was to try and put some numbers on this. And we came up with a physics-based approach that allows us to say, how long do we anticipate this sink to persist? And how does that compare with the amount of durability that we think we need? So, for example, Frontier, they're looking for a thousand years. So if you have something that persists for a hundred years on a thousand year basis, what value is that? What level of fungibility is it? And we came out with a number that was between five and 10%. So in other words, you would need 10 to 20 credits of that type. That was afforestation of the, in the model that we ran to be equivalent to one ton of fossil carbon emissions. Whereas for example, enhanced rock weathering was one for one. So how do you go from where we are now to making that a reality? where this idea of fungibility within the voluntary carbon market exists. For that, there is a methodology that can be applied, something called the climate repair value. So yes, indeed. Climate repair value, this is a metric that we've developed here at Imperial. It's simply a way of just describing the interchangeability between different types of carbon removal pathways, so afforestation, biochar, enhanced weathering, and so on. It's a bit like a discounting factor that accounts for the durability and exclusively the durability of the carbon removed. And then the idea is that you can then include this metric in any transaction that you might want to do. And to me, the value of this approach is that A, it's pretty holistic. It doesn't count anything out. 
but B, it does support the recognition of the true value of durable carbon removal. And therefore, it will help not inhibit the scale-up of carbon removal technologies. This point, I feel, gets undermentioned, and Niall clearly gave a bit more of an extensive answer. But the way to look at it is that CO2 as a greenhouse gas, once it's emitted, as Niall mentioned, it's in our atmosphere for millennia. So this is, of course, why, number one, we need deep decarbonization of value chains. But this is also why CDR is becoming super important. So we need to understand what these different CDR activities, what their specific climate repair values are. If we're coming at this from a truly crystal clear, transparent carbon accounting perspective, we need to understand what that equivalence is. And to your point, Emily, there is a scale. So everything has a value. It might not just be 100% equivalent on its own to a fossil CO2 emission that is in our atmosphere for millennia, right? If you're talking about an activity such as reforestation from a pure climate repair value perspective, the durability may not be as long, but still really important. And taking a step back, activities such as reforestation have immense value also in other areas, right? So co-benefits, biodiversity, social, whatever it may be. But we're just focusing purely on the climate impact here. I'm very curious to start digging into what's Carbonez doing differently? How are you approaching this solution or this problem? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I think importantly here, there's an opportunity to define a scientifically backed methodology around equivalence within CDR. This fungibility or equivalence can help us with contextualizing the repair as a variable when comparing the different CDR activities and then applying it from a market's perspective. So I think the whole ecosystem would benefit from this. Standard setters in particular can utilize this pathway or something similar in order to incentivize a progressive approach to equivalence. But sellers need to know what they're selling, issuers need to know what they're issuing, and exchanges need to know, of course, what they're hosting. And this could also be a potential marker for policymakers if they're looking at trying to incorporate CDR into compliance schemes, for example. I think the whole ecosystem could benefit from this. And buyers of credits in particular need a way of trusting what it is that they're buying. And ultimately, they need to secure supply of high quality credits and ultimately safeguard their net zero strategies. And we need this because we want to catalyze drastic action. So in terms of what Carbonaires are doing within this space, we're wanting to utilize this from a pricing perspective. So we're incorporating the work from Nile and Imperial on CRV and adapting it and applying it to try and induce some price signals. You know, we believe that CRV should be a variable in pricing. We want to create benchmarks for transparency and induce that liquidity and confidence. And we're working on a proprietary model at the moment to price these various CDR activities. And we're super keen to partner with other stakeholders in the industry because we truly believe that together we can create impact. Also, we're utilizing CRV and applying it through a portfolio approach. There was a timely article that came out from Grantham and LSC and they were highlighting the need for innovation. So they're calling for having a system that enables permanent standards over time. 
and then facilitates the cost reduction of expensive CDR methods. So Carbon Airs, we're wanting to catalyze investment today in order to build capacity for the future. So incorporating CRV, climate repair value, into a portfolio approach, it enables capital flows to those conventional and important sinks. So for example, reforestation, along with supporting novel CDR technologies. So in year one, we could sell a portfolio that equates to 100% CRV1 or completely like for like with the fossil emission. But the construction of that portfolio might be say 80% reforestation and then 20% DAC or biogenic CCS. Tom and I love a portfolio approach and it is great to see an example of you using your methodology to get there. To wrap up, could you share for our listeners where they can find out more about the work that you do? So I presented this climate repair value CRV concept in a paper that we published in the journal Jewel last year. So it's the cost of permanent carbon dioxide removal. So please go have a look. I think it's open access. Carbon Airs, we're doing some exciting things. And as I mentioned, leveraging off the work from Nile and Imperial in order to help us provide pricing signals within CDR. And we're very open to working with stakeholders in this area, but also more from a portfolio approach or an index approach as well, offering a progressive CRV value over time to help channel capital to as many projects as possible, as long as they're scientifically validated. So feel free to connect with me. Well, there was a lot in that conversation. You know, this idea of moving from the status quo, where we are now, where a ton just equals a ton, no matter how long it's stored for, towards a marketplace where the quality of removals, by which we mean durability, is actually inherent to how we value them. I mean, colour me intrigued. This feels like the direction we need to go in, and... Johnny and Niall today have proposed something that feels like it could take us in that direction. I feel as though this concept addresses some key issues. And when you're talking about quality here, I think putting a climate repair value on these projects is going to help a lot when it comes to thinking about this transparency. It reminds us, and me especially, that the goal of carbon removal, after all, really is about repairing our climate. And unless we can see how effectively they're doing this, we're missing a key part of the picture. Yeah, totally. I think we talk so much about the complexities of this market and it's going to be really difficult to do this and that and the other. And particularly in this season, we've been talking so much about scaling up and how tricky that is and how tricky it's going to be in the coming years and decades. And to have this little beam of light in the middle of all that that's like, well, actually, here's a way that we could possibly do that. That's just really nice to have that sort of glimmer of hope amongst all this complexity. Yeah, totally. I like this, Tom, you know, opening up to what the future of the carbon removal industry could hold. Let's keep doing this, please. Well, Emily, your wish is my command. Mm, Music to my ears. Next time on the Carbon Removal Show, we're going to zoom in on scale. That sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, Tom. It does now that I've said it, but trust me... So far, we've been looking at big picture industry scaling, but what does that really mean for individual companies? Mm, Okay, nice. I like where this is going. Tune in next time. It's going to be a good one. I'll be there. See you then. Thanks again to Carbon Airs for supporting this episode. If you'd like to talk about ways that you can support the show and tell your story, get in touch via our website, thecarbonremovalshow.com. Big thank you to everyone who makes this show possible. 
Our researcher and fact checker, Henry Irvine. Our graphic designer, Reke Campbell. Our composer, Sam Carter. Our producer, Ben Weaver-Hinks. And our executive producer, Sam Floyd. I've been Emily Swaddle. And I've been Tom Praviti. You can find us online at thecarbonremovalshow.com. We're on LinkedIn as The Carbon Removal Show. And we're on Twitter or X as Restored CC. See you next time.